of Luke. Luke chapter 13. We're going to start to look at verses 22 through 30 this morning. I always have great ambitious uh, intentions to get through uh, large sections, but it just never seems to work out for me in that way. I either have too many questions and not enough time or some, something of that nature comes about. Uh, so I'm going to tell you in advance we will not get through all the way to verse 30 today. But the title of the message that I want to bring to you today is simply called The Narrow Way into the Kingdom. The Narrow Way into the kingdom. If you were here with us a couple of weeks ago, we looked at what Jesus had taught us about the nature of the kingdom in the last couple of parables, and that the kingdom of God will start small like a mustard seed, but it will grow and grow outwardly and visibly until the birds of the air will come to it and they will find rest and sustenance, representing those who are who will come to Christ, will be from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and that the kingdom of God will open up to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. And the second parable was much like it, in that the kingdom will grow from the inside out, not so visibly, much like leaven within flour, meaning that we don't always see the ways and the means in which the kingdom of God is expanding. We don't see it in the countless hours of sermon preparation or phone calls between believers encouraging one another. And we even know this from our own personal experiences within our own heart. But the kingdom of God will grow and grow because God himself is the one who will cause that growth, both outwardly because it was Jesus that told Peter in Matthew chapter 16 that he will be the one who will build his church in the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And likewise, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he said that he planted and Apollos watered, but God caused the growth. And we see that inwardly as well, because in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul says that we should not lose heart, because even though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. The kingdom of God will grow outwardly and very visibly and inwardly and not so visibly. And the Lord used a couple of illustrations and parables to teach us about the nature of this kingdom expansion. But this week, Jesus gives us more insight into the kingdom of God. As we've been working our way through Luke, we've seen that this is in fact a recurring theme all throughout the Gospel of Luke, and that is the kingdom of God. The angel Gabriel told Mary in Luke chapter 1 that this child that was to be born to her, the Lord Jesus Christ, would have a kingdom that would have no end. In Luke chapter 4, verse 43, Jesus said that he must go to the other cities to preach the gospel, to preach the kingdom of God, it says, because he was sent for that purpose. In Luke chapter 6, verse 20, Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Jesus warned in Luke 9, 62, that no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 11, we're taught to pray, and your kingdom come, and no less than the second petition of the Lord's prayer. 
And so Luke, who is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is wanting us to be certain about what Jesus Christ is teaching us in the nature, the characteristics, and the essence of the kingdom of God. And if you were here with us a couple weeks ago, we showed that the kingdom of God is actually one of the great predominant themes throughout the entirety of the whole Bible, for that matter. And one of the greatest importance that we saw about the kingdom of God for you and I as believers is that the kingdom of God should have absolute preeminence in every single thing that we do. Matthew 6.33, Jesus told us, he said, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Everything we pursue, everything that we set before ourselves, everything that we strive for should have as the number one priority, the rule and the reign of God. You and I are not living for our retirements, but we are living for a heavenly reward. We are not living for this world, but we are living for the next. We're not just raising children to be moral adults, but hopefully we are raising our children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. We're not just going to work to do our jobs, but we're constantly looking to have gospel conversations with our coworkers and our clients. We're working in such a way that we're not just pleasing our bosses, but we're working in such a way that is pleasing to the Lord. In other words, in every moment, in every affair, in every activity or pursuit that we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are involved in, it is all done with the understanding that it is to be done under the subjection, the rule and the reign of the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's more that the Lord wants us to know about the kingdom of God, and we find that here in our text today. Something that we hear very, very little of in our modern-day churches. So, if you're there with me in Luke chapter 13, I want to read our text this morning so that we can have it on our hearts and our minds. Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 22, I want to invite you to stand, if you're able to do so, for the reading of God's Word. God's inspired and inerrant Word says this, And he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves, yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Let's pray. Father, 
As we read these words, some of these words are terrifying words. They're weighty words to hear from your lips, depart from me. What a tragedy that would be. Father, help us to understand this text rightly this morning. Help us to not just to hear these words, God, but to apply them to our heart and to live them. Father, we pray for your strength this morning. We pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. If uh, you were to go down to central Kentucky and visit Mammoth Cave National Park and take one of the tours there, there's a couple of tours in which the park rangers and the guides will sort of prep you even before you go down into the caverns. There's one particular tour down there that you have to wear gloves and helmets and boots and jeans to even get into the cave because you actually have to crawl on your belly through cracks and crevices and they will take you through all of those things, but I even think you have to be 16 years of age to be able to go on this particular tour. It's pretty strenuous. But before every other tour, the park rangers will have a little meeting outside with everyone in a shelter just outside of the cave entrance. And one of the things they will do is to make sure that you are healthy enough and physically fit enough to be able to ascend and descend all the stairs that you have to climb so that you don't get stuck down into the bottom of this cave. There's vertical shafts and narrow staircases that you have to be able to navigate in order to just get into a small portion of the 400-plus miles worth of caves and caverns that are in this park. But on one particular tour, there is a narrow serpentine passage in which the width of the wall is only about a foot in some spaces. And the height is right around five feet. There's about eight winding twists and bends. And so to be able to navigate your way through this passage, you have to be able to kind of contort your body and and bend and twist in such a way that you're going to be able to fit into this narrow passageway. And they have a, a name for this passage, by the way. It's called Fat Man's Misery. Now, I don't know how long the National Park Service is going to allow it to be called Fat Man's Misery until they come up with some other politically correct, gender-neutral term for it, but for now, that's what they call it. But the point of it is this, is that in order to be able to go on this tour, to be able to go on it from beginning to end and to see all the grandeur and the splendor and the beauty that this cave has to offer, it's going to require the average person to sort of morph and change physically from a a natural upright posture or shape into something that's completely different. You may have to bend over or turn sideways and twist your body, watch your footing as you go, and sort of exert some effort to get through this very, very narrow passageway. The lazy are not going to make it through it. Those who stand back at a distance and simply admire it aren't going to make it through. Those who stay upstairs in the visitor center aren't going to make it through. But only those who are willing to exert themselves and do the necessary work and willing to do whatever it takes, will make it through to the other side. 
And that really is kind of the message that Jesus wants to communicate to us in verse 24 this morning, when he says to strive to enter through the narrow door. In terms of salvation, there is a narrow way that is going to require effort on your part. There is a constricted path that may have some obstacles and some difficulties, but the way that leads to salvation will require an intensity and a deep resolve in your heart. Now, this is a message from the Lord himself, and it's quite different from the let go and let God mantra that we hear today in modern day evangelicalism. But we also need to clarify what Jesus is not saying here as well, because if we don't rightly understand it, we can quickly walk away from this text like this, and we can grossly misunderstand it and misapply it. And to be quite honest with you, as I read a multitude of commentaries on this particular verse, I was really surprised about how diverse and how varied the opinions are of this particular passage. There wasn't like a general consensus. But this passage is really a riveting text that every single person in this room ought to look at with a little bit of sobriety and ought to grip your attention as you read this verse. When the greatest of all evangelists, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and he starts to speak on matters of eternal significance and speaks of the way of the kingdom of God, We all in this room ought to perk up and we ought to take note of exactly what he's saying. Now, we begin this portion of scripture with a reminder of the the Lord's mission and his ultimate destiny. We see this in verse 22, if you'll look at it there with me. It says, and he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. Now, he had just concluded his Galilean ministry, and we saw in, in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, how this, this was a turning point in the life and the ministry of Jesus, and that he had resolutely set his face to go toward Jerusalem. And he'll finally get there in, in chapter 19, but it's not exactly a direct path that he's taking. He's weaving his way there from city and, and village and town, and he's teaching and preaching As he goes, he'll actually, I think, in chapter 17, make one more journey up into Galilee. But this really, this teaching and this preaching is one of the hallmarks of his ministry and that he is a teacher of the absolute truth about God, about heaven, about hell and all of eternity. And if anyone is going to give it to you straight about the nature and the means of salvation, it would be the Lord Jesus Christ. The miracles that he performed weren't necessarily his main purpose for ministry, but they only served to validate his divine nature, and thus they confirmed his divine message. And yet so many churches today, they place a huge emphasis on miracles and manifestations and all kinds of craziness. We talked about this before. Feathers in the duck worked of the, of the heaters, you know? All this kind of craziness, and they completely miss the gospel of Jesus Christ. But remember, in Luke 4, he didn't say that he must go into the other cities to heal and cast out demons or anything like that, but that he must go to the other cities to preach the kingdom of God. 
His laser focus is on teaching people about the kingdom of God. How in the world do you get out of Satan's kingdom and into God's kingdom? How do you get out of darkness and into God's marvelous light? How do I get right with God? That's what his purpose is. And so out of the multitude of people that's been surrounding him, we saw that at the beginning of chapter 12, thousands and thousands of people, someone misunderstands that salvation is the brass tacks that Jesus has been teaching on. And he's still confused. He understands sort of that salvation is the issue, but he doesn't understand the extent of salvation. And more than likely, it was probably because of the parables that Jesus just taught. Remember, in both parables, the kingdom starts out small and it gets bigger and bigger. But for the average Jew who held to a messianic hope as revealed in the Old Testament... The expectation was that the Messiah was going to come, he was going to burst onto the scenes, he was going to take names, and he was going to kick some Roman tail. The Messiah was going to overthrow the Romans and deliver the nation and and restore the glorious kingdom of David that would arise and once again cause Israel to be this shining beacon of the world. And everyone who was an Israelite was going to be saved just by the nature of their heritage and their lineage. But that's not what Christ has been teaching. And that's not what this person is necessarily seeing. And so in verse 23, someone asks him, says, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? So whoever this person is, He's got some preconceived notions about the size of the kingdom. But after listening to Jesus, he's confused about the quantity. And just like when Peter asked a question back in Luke 12 and and verse 41, when he said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And and Jesus doesn't give him a direct answer. He, He doesn't give him, tell him, say, yes, Peter, this is for you, or yes, this is for everyone else, but he says what? He says, who then is the faithful and sensible steward? You're wanting to know something personally, Peter, but this applies to you and to everyone within earshot of my voice. Here the Lord does the exact same thing in our text this morning. He doesn't give this person a direct answer. But he takes the question from the individual and he applies it to the group. Because someone, meaning a single person, right, asked the question, but yet it says that Jesus replied to them, the plural, the multitude. So essentially what Jesus is doing is taking this potentially speculative question on the nature of salvation from this one individual, and he turns it around into a very pointed challenge that requires personal evaluation for everyone there. Someone asks a question, but he replies to all. And if you've ever taught in a group or you've ever had to do a talk with little children, you know how difficult it is to keep everyone engaged and focused on the topic at hand. People's minds, they're, they're prone to wander and, and drift, and, and they want to know something that's completely off topic or outside the realm of the conversation, and they completely miss the point. I know when I do some safety talks for school-aged children, inevitably someone wants to ask a question, and they raise their hand, 
And instead of asking a question, they talk, start talking about their new puppy dog or how grandma is on, in Florida on vacation or something like that. And they can quickly derail everything that you're trying to accomplish and teach them if you don't bring them back. And so as Jesus is addressing this individual and corralling the group by bringing them back to the topic that's of utmost importance, it even goes to this individual that's asking the question. And so in order to keep them all from drifting, he doesn't give the person the exact answer he may have wanted, but he gives them the exact answer that they need. Because it's very easy for us to sort of do the same thing when we listen to the Word of God. We can start to drift. We can start to think about other things. Did I turn off the coffee pot at home? Did I put the dog in the kennel? Lord God, I hope I did, right? All those things that we start to drift off of when we, when we start to listen to the Word of God. We can all start to drift and not think about the topic that's at hand. Or it's very easy for us to listen to a message and then start to think to ourselves, you know, so-and-so, they really need to hear this message. That lady over there in that other pew, boy, she needs this one this morning. That would be a good message for that guy who's not here today. But in all honesty, the message is for every single one of us, even the guy in the pulpit. If you ever wonder... Why in the world does it seem like we are going so slow through the gospel, Luke? It's because Matt Gleason has a lot to learn. Matt Gleason has a lot to apply, and so when I get hung up, you get hung up. If I feel it's important, we're going to stop, pause, and drink in deep of this word. And so by answering this group, it's as if Jesus is saying to this guy, Look, Stop worrying about so-and-so over there. Don't concern yourself with numbers. It doesn't matter how many, but take heed for yourself. Before death knocks on your door. Before a Roman soldier or a ruthless dictator comes and lobs off your head. Before the Tower of Siloam or something like it falls down on you and takes you, make sure that you are taking every effort to enter through the narrow door. And brothers and sisters, if I can make it more relevant to you today, make sure before you get in that car crash that you didn't plan for. Make sure before you get that pathology report back that you know where you are going. Brothers and sisters, make sure that you are taking every effort to enter into the narrow door. Because that's the message we find in verse 24. And he says to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. Now we really need to get this into our vocabulary as Christians. If you were to ask someone how their walk with Christ is going or how their Christian life is going, how many people would respond and say, I am striving to enter through the narrow door? Very few, if any. Alistair Begg, there was a a story I read about him when he was in 
in Massachusetts and giving a convocation there uh, for graduation. And he went to a, a coffee shop to do a little preparation of some finishing touches on his sermon. And he felt really out of place. The, the college atmosphere, the, the people that were coming in, not really his cup of tea. But he noticed uh, an oriental woman sitting by herself in the corner of this cafe. And, and she appeared to be reading a Bible. And so he, he walked over to her and, and noticed that it was, in fact, a Bible that she was reading from. And he asked her, he said, young lady, can I ask, are you a Christian? And she looked up to him and she said, oh, yes, I'm striving to enter through the narrow way. Is it, isn't it amazing and sad at the same time that people that are not from America have a greater grip on the understanding of their faith than we do. It's a sad testimony on our part. This is how Jesus is describing true salvation, the narrow door. He says, you must strive. And this word, this word for strive in the Greek is agonizomai. Agonizomai. It's where we get our English word for agonize. Agonize to enter through the narrow door. It's a, it's a strong word. It means to engage in an intense struggle. A more literal translation might be fight. Fight. Fight to enter into the narrow door. And this word isn't used in any of the other synoptic gospels. If you'll remember from Many, many, many moons ago, the synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right? But this word is used in John 18, 36. And when Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting. Same word there. They would be engaging in hand-to-hand combat. They would be in an intense struggle with you if my kingdom was, in fact, of this world. But we, we see this hand-to-hand combat, this fighting and striving and agonizing all throughout the New Testament as well. Because to enter into the Christian life is for you to enter into the fight. To say yes to Jesus Christ is to enlist as a soldier and to begin the warfare. Your life is not supposed to be this life of comfort and ease. You're not going to be able to sleep and and coast your way to heaven because the Bible never gives any indication that that's what your life should look like. Now, there may be some of you here that might be saying, you know what? That sounds like legalism. I'm going to throw the legalism flag on that one. But brothers and sisters, this is not legalism. This is practical holiness. We are exhorted to live a life of holiness unto the Lord. 1 Peter 1.15 says, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. And the scripture makes it abundantly clear that you and I as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to be fighting and striving and agonizing and warring Christians, we're not pacifists with the gospel. Let's dispel this notion, if we can, with the scriptures 
that this is legalism. 1 Timothy 6.12, Paul says this. He says to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. We're told to endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ in 2 Timothy 2.3. Ephesians 6.11-13, many of you are familiar with it. It says, put on the full armor of God. Why? So that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Well, what am, what am I fighting against, you ask? For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We are told we're to work for food, which does not perish in John six twenty seven. but we are to work for food, which endures to eternal life. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Paul says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and they've sh- suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 26 and 27, he says this, Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not to beat the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And the Lord makes it abundantly clear for us back in Luke 9.23. He said this, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Not just one time back in November 1st of 1993, but daily take up your cross. You can't be an apathetic, passive, and slumbering Christian. You must be alert You must be sober-minded. You must fight. You must strive. You must be a warring Christian. The Christian life is not about your self-fulfillment. The Christian life is not about you just adding Jesus Christ to your life's portfolio. The Christian life is not about just making your kids good moral citizens. The Christian life is not about you living the American dream, having health, having wealth. The Christian life is about you being a man or woman who is willing to do whatever it takes to endure whatever comes your way, to suffer whatsoever is necessary so that at the end of your life, you will enjoy ever lasting presence of the living God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is what your Christian life is about. That is what Christianity is about. There are so many people in this world, people, that are giving you a false message of the gospel. It's not health and wealth. Your best life is not now. You will suffer hardship, the Lord tells us. But He will sustain you. He will keep you. How many of us would hire a contractor to build a house for them? If this guy said, you know what? I really don't know a lot about framing and building construction. How many of us would hire a mechanic who came along and said, you know what? I really don't know a whole lot about cars. 
How many of us would have a doctor perform some sort of surgery on their body who said, you know what, I've never really been to medical school. And yet we have millions and millions of people who have claimed to be Christian for decades. And yet you ask them, tell me about your faith in Jesus Christ. And they shrink back and they put their hands in their pockets and they say, I don't know that much. They know nothing of spiritual strife. They know nothing about warring with their faith. They know nothing about the conflict of the inner man. They know nothing about the war against their own sin. And they know nothing about the grace of God that sustains them day by day. Beloved, brothers and sisters, this should not be true of us. Jesus tells you, you must strive to enter through the narrow door. You must exert effort and agonize and fight for your faith. I I want to come back next week and answer some more questions of this text that I simply didn't have the time to get all the way through. Like, what exactly are we striving against? Is this teaching works-based salvation? And I'll give you a little bit of spoiler alert. No, it is not. But I have a whole host of other questions that I want to answer of this text. But let me close with this warning from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. It says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I know of a guy who said he came to faith in Christ. And he started Bible studies, leading them, trying to get other men to come together to study the Word of God. And uh, over time, he came to me and and admitted that he had gotten into sin while his wife was out of town. And today, some three to four years now later, he's not walking with God. Not in the least bit. Beloved, we are in a battle for our faith. And one of the most important things that God has given to us is Christian fellowship with each other. He's given us this church so that we might encourage one another and spur on one another to the upward call in Christ Jesus. Do you know of this battle? Do you know of this fight? Because if you, if you do, if you can cry out with the hymnist that says, Oh Lord, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, then you can be confident that God has begun a good work in you and that your faith is more precious than gold. But if you know nothing of this battle, if you know nothing of this fight and this agonizing, you need to understand that there will come a time when that door will shut. We saw that 
earlier in Luke 12. Do you know of this agonizing and striving and fighting for your faith? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that it's only by your strength and your power that we can overcome. Lord, let us be completely dependent upon you for that empowerment. Help us to fight the things that tempt us. Help us to strive and agonize for our faith. Help us to be mortifying sin. Father, we need your help to overcome. We need your strength and we need your power by the Holy Spirit. Father, help us to do this. Help us to accomplish that grace, that great work for the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.